0: Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're rereading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. So we're now opening up the front cover of The Letter of Mark, which is a bit of a milestone Patrick O'Brien book. You're with Mike, and I'm about to ask my good friend Ian. yeah, to tell us a little bit about Letter of Mark, Ian, and then catch us up with where we were when we closed out with Reverse of the Metal and where we're headed for.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mike. It's a a really interesting moment, not only in the evolution of the canon, having been through all the travails of of the previous book, but it turns out that this is a really exciting moment for the writing career of Patrick O'Brien as well. And we haven't really talked much about that, except passingly in the last few books. But if we all remember, he was getting along okay in the British market. He had some success in the U.S. market, but then he lost his U.S. publishing deal. And this, Letter of Mark, um, is the first book that went straight to the U.S. market in the hands of his new publisher, ww norton Uh, a couple of years after letter of mark was published in the uk it was published in the us under this new deal so we're talking about august 1990 the book was published in late 87 early 88 i think in the uk and we're now up to 1990 and for lots of the readers and listeners who are old enough to remember back then this we're getting into the era of peak o'brien in terms of his celebrity and his kind of big fan base so it's a really exciting moment i guess it must have been exciting for uh, for patrick o'brien as well we're going to hear later on about how he took a little bit of revenge on some of the people that he thought had been holding him back earlier on um but this was a great moment and critically as well i got great critical notices richard snow in new york times wrote one of those great um admiring articles about the books and the series he was the one who said this remark that i think got splashed on the covers of lots of the books said these are the greatest historical fiction novels ever written and the article was headlined an author I'd walk the plank for. And Mike, that's that's pretty high praise. It's also worth noting that at this moment, we started to get the Jeff Hunt artwork appearing on the covers of not only the British imprint, but the US publishers as well. Um, it was around this time, late 80s, that O'Brien had started having conversations with Jeff Hunt. Um, his first commissioned cover was for Letter of Mark. And of course, as we all know, all of the... Novels in the canon, right the way back to the beginning at Master and Commander, all then got published with these beautiful oil paintings by Jeff Hunt. Right,
0: and you know it's it's fascinating too, thinking back to this milestone with Letter of Mark and WW w. Norton in the US, and now that we're right in the midst of W.W. W. Norton reissuing all the Patrick O'Brien books in this series again. I'm I'm sitting here with three of them, you know, kind of looking down on me lovingly just over my left ear here.
1: Yeah, and let, let's be honest, it was a generation ago. So 1990, that's yeah. 30 years ago that we all got to love the Jeff Hunt artwork. And there's a new reissue, a new cover art, and hopefully a whole new set of readers, and it's really exciting.
0: Yeah, for sure. <sighs>
1: So let's talk then, Mike, about where we were at the end of the previous book and what might be coming for us this week. At the end of the reverse of the medal, Stephen had been negotiating terms for a secret mission for the surprise to sail as a letter of marque as a private man of war to help liberate Chile and Peru. Nathaniel Martin had published a pamphlet criticising the flogging and impressment of the Navy. We'll hear some more about that this episode as well. French spymaster Duhamel had returned Diana's blue Peter Diamond to Stephen, and Stephen, in return, had arranged passage to Canada along with Henri Dundas for Duhamel in exchange for information that led us in the closing paragraph of the previous book to have confirmed at long last that Ray and his named Mr. Smith, actually Ledwood, his colleague, are in fact French spies. Stephen now knows this, Blaine knows this, we've known this for a couple of books, and we learned. In just what detail and with what clever planning they had arranged this whole stock exchange fraud with Ellis Palmer, who it turned out was also in the pay of the French spy networks. Wow. And Mike, we had been sitting there waiting to hear what's going to happen next. This time, as we open up Letter of Mark, we're going to hear that Jack is picking the last of his men for the Surprises crew. Stephen... Is having nothing to do with Ray and Ledwood yet, but is making his way to meet Nathaniel Martin, the pamphleteer, and is going to get distracted. He's going to get distracted by a man in blue pants and a big bustard in Adele. And two interesting admirals are going to appear on the scene just as the surprise prepares to
0: sail. Wow. wow. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, I mean, I, this is one of these times when I really loved the thought that Patrick O'Brien was going to stop on one page and open up the next novel with that continuation of that story. It's like, you know, kind of the Spanish gold ships, here we go, you know, next page, we're right back here. As you say, doesn't happen. But You know, you had mentioned last time that O'Brien seems to have fallen even more in love with Jack and was featuring Jack. Mm -hmm. And we open with Jack again in Letter of Mark. And O'Brien writes, ever since Jack Aubrey had been dismissed from the service, ever since his name now with its meaningless seniority had been struck off the list of post captains, it seemed to him that he was living in a radically different world. Everything was perfectly familiar from the smell of the seawater and tarred rigging to the gentle heave of the deck under his feet, but the essence was gone and he was a stranger.
1: Ah, oh, wow. It, first of all, we, we very, very quickly uh, are invited to forget that our excitement about finding out what's going to happen with the spy intrigues with Ray and Ledward and Colonel Warren and uh, Sir Joseph Blaine and all the rest of them. But he's really setting us up to enjoy being in this place, Shelmiston the surprise is anchored at well People on the internet believe that Shelmiston was based somewhat on Appledore, which is on the North coast of Devon. Anyhow, geographically and culturally, we're a long way from Portsmouth. We're a long way from the Downs. We're a long way from the Thames anchorages. We're in the West country where things, you know, smugglers smuggle and men are men. And, Shelmiston, Patrick O'Brien describes as being an out of the way port with an awkward bar and a dangerous tide race, avoided by the Navy and by merchantmen, but much frequented by smugglers and privateers. I, I can't resist going aha in my head here <laughs> as I read this out. <laughs> Many of whose fast, rakish, predatory vessels could be seen along the quay. Jack, we read, is wandering why Shelmiston reminds him so much of all the pirate and buccaneer hangouts that he used to see in the West Indies. The text says, Shelmiston had no waving coconut palms, no brilliant coral strand, and yet there was this likeness. Perhaps it lay in the large and flashy public houses, the general air of slovenliness and easy money, the large number of whores, and a feeling that only a singularly determined and well-armed press gang would ever make an attempt upon it right. we're, we're i think we're right there we're thinking yeah okay pass pass me rum i'm 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 in certainly for the easy living in the public houses i'm not sure about the whores. but right. we're right there and a couple of boats are rowing out toward the surprise with people wanting to join a crew and here's a mike here's a first moment of us learning how jack Aubrey's view on the world is now a little bit different one of these boats is led by an absurdly beautiful girl with dark red hair. She's a new local favourite. Jack, we learn, observes her indifferently and he tells Tom Pullings, his second in command, not to let her aboard and to take the three men, only the three best men, off the boats. And Mike, this is a Jack that we haven't seen before in quite this way.
0: No, 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 for sure not. I mean, you know, O'Brien even tells us in the text, you know, Jack's no whoremonger, but he's no celibate either, you know. Mm. It, it tells us that Jack, you know, used to take the liveliest pleasure in beauty. And and as you say, Ed, we're really kind of learning a little bit more about kind of the essence of Jack's life being gone here. Oh, gosh, well, Pullings and the bosun and the gunner and Bondin, you know, are putting these potential men through some pretty tough tests. Uh, O'Brien writes they have to lay aloft time by a long glass. Loose and furl a top-gallon sail, traverse and point a great gun, fire a musket at a bottle hanging from the foreyard arm, and tie a crowned double-walled knot before the eyes of a crowd of thoroughgoing seamen. So really, you know, this is like basic training. No, no. This is like, you know, graduate-level exams for these guys all in front of this crew. This
1: is the varsity crew, absolutely. <laughs> It's funny, I like this. this. This gives me the feeling of like a heist movie. Like, you know, <laughs> D- Danny Ocean getting his Eleven together or Yul Brenner getting the Magnificent Seven together. Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll take you. We'll take you. Yeah, okay, we need a Gunner's mate. Okay, we'll take him. Which is a, it's a far cry from how they were before. Um, can I, uh, Let me say something here about this, this knot. Uh, uh, of course, it's an authentic reference. How would it not be with Patrick O'Brien? A double-walled crown knot is and not that you might it's a decorative stopper knot basically there are videos of how to make one of these on youtube it's really intricate looks really fancy when it's done not the kind of thing people use for regular kind of sailboating and climbing and kind of fly tying and stuff these days knots that you use to attach things to each other are still widely in use you know a rope to attach a boat to a key or to attach a spar to something else those kind of knots we still use splices that engineer bits of rope together Professional riggers still use them. Not many everyday sailors are, are proficient in splicing, but these very decorative kind of craft-oriented bits of rope work are almost a dying art. The closest thing that I've seen in everyday life to a, a, a double ball knot is a, a knot called a monkey's fist. You often tie a monkey's fist on the end of a heaving line, a throwing line. Um, I've got a doorstop in my hallway that is a monkey's fist on a little rope loop, and the dog likes to chew it. So <laughs> a little bit of archaic rope work skills there being on display by the crew.
0: Nice. Well, finding men and supplies is is described as a paradise here in Shelverston. You know, it's much better than Jack's naval experience of sailing many men short of complement, never being able to get them, of, you know, having the yards keeping you waiting forever for things here. There are people who are competent and competing against each other to get Jack his supplies, Men competing against one another to serve with Lucky Jack on a ship like Surprise, and Jack even suspects that some of his naval friends, like Henage Dundas, have allowed some of their men to leave to join Jack. So, uh, Ryan tells us that Jack really appeals not only to these, you know, old surprises and people from the navy that know and love him, but also to the smugglers and privateersmen. They see him as. Older, tall, broad-shouldered with a face that's, as O'Brien writes, habitually somber with a touch of latent wickedness. Mm. Anyone used to the abrupt ways of the sea could instantly tell that this was not a face to be trifled with. If such a man were put out, the blow would come without a moment's warning and be damned of the consequences. Dangerous because past caring. So, boy, talk about kind of revealing where Jack is in this dark place. I mean, boy, this is this is not the Jack who's, you know, so upset by the sight of these piratical guys who would swim up and slice the necks up. This is a Jack that they're thinking, this guy's really tough. But this yeah. toughness from this darkness is really kind of earning him the respect of a lot of these men. Now, O'Brien goes on to tell us that Surprise is probably now at her most effective, efficient, most professional crew of any ship her size. And he writes, which might well have filled her captain's heart with joy. And indeed, when he reflected upon the fact, it did bring him a certain amount of conscientious pleasure and what joy the heart could hold. This was not very much. Hmm. So not much room in Jack's heart. As a matter of fact, we, you know, we read that his heart's been sealed off in order to accept his misfortune without breaking, making him, as described here, an emotional eunuch. And not like in his younger days when he, like Nelson, was somewhat given to tears, you know, tears at his first command, tears when playing a particular piece of music, even sobbing at a shipmate's funeral. You know, O'Brien writes, he was now as hard and dried out as a man could well be, and tells us that even when he left Sophie and the kids for this journey, He just had a slight constriction in his throat, which unfortunately made his farewells sound harsh and unfeeling. And boy, and this is, I think this is when the alarm bells went off for me. He had not touched his fiddle since he came aboard.
1: But Mike, I think this is one of the big setups for this whole book. So rather than saying Jack is down in the dumps, how are we going to get him back? In the same adjacent paragraphs in the same chapter we've got on the one hand jack is hardened and he's in a gloomy place but on the other hand he's got this great bounty of these enthusiastic sailors and enthusiastic supplies and a well-found ship and his friend on the way so for me this is the first bit of tension in the book what's gonna win is jack's melancholy gonna drag him down or is this freebooting life of a letter of mark gonna restore his love of being at sea and being with his shipmates and that's the big question. Those are the two big forces that I think are potentially at play here. Nice. And and I think that that's what we're looking forward to in the next few chapters. So back to the lightness and the joy of welcoming aboard some new shipmates here. We have these three new hands and Tom Pullings brings them forward and introduces Harvey, Fisher and Whittaker. They are three cousins. We know right away that they're smugglers and that means that they are excellent hands as seamen. Jack goes through the motions of saying, you understand, these are the terms, there's shares and there's discipline and there's punishment and I'm taking you on approval. And at the same time as this delight in taking these really choice hands, Jack is also reflecting that while he can remember the old surprises the people who have sailed with him in the past, he's having trouble remembering some of the other names. So he knows that he has his new second and third mates who are both former King's officers, both court-martialed, a guy called West, who had been dueling, and a guy called Davidge who had signed off his purser's books without really checking them. But he was having trouble remembering the other officers. He could remember his stout bosun bulkily because his name is a bit of a pun. And he can get away with calling carpenter chips and master gunner can be called master gunner. But he's having a harder time remembering the other men. So this is not the Jack who finds life easy. This is the Jack who's adjusting a little bit to, to the new situation here
0: yeah and you know we remember back you know Jack used to be on a ship with you know hundreds and hundreds of people, and an inspection could call each of them by name and not only really yeah. by name but knew them in their situation, but not now. Well, Jack orders the ship moved outside the bar so that he can catch the tide later and and everything goes as fast and as well as as with the old surprise crew, but in the midst of it, as the capstan begins to turn. A shanty starts. The men, not the old surprises, but the others, are singing. And and of course, working songs were not allowed in the Royal Navy. And and Pullings is a bit taken aback, and he doesn't know quite what to do. He looks at Jack, and Jack just says, "Let them sing." This is the Jack we know. Jack wants to be sure there's no bad blood between the old surprises and the new hands. You know, he's he's looking forward to you know some big blow or a successful encounter with the uh, with the enemy to kind of meld them into a single body. But for now, all he could do was kind of mix the crews and the watches. And he realizes that what he calls this unparalleled situation might really be helping here. Uh, as, uh-huh. as they describe it, you know, listening to these guys sing this shanty, it says, all those concerned, particularly the surprises, seemed amazed by it, uncertain what to think or to do, there being no formula at hand. Ah,
1: <sighs> so... They drop anchor in the open sea and the operation is done. We spent a little bit of time trying to find out exactly what this shanty might be with these lyrics of uh, round and round she goes, way oh, wayo. Oh. We couldn't find that one. If anybody out there knows the reference or even has a recording for the shanty that, uh, that O'Brien referenced, then let us know. Uh, we treated you to a little bit of Kimber's men there um, in the background, just to remind us of that great chat that we had with John Bromley a few months ago. Anyhow. Thanks, in part, to the smooth running of this uh, capstan shanty, everything's run smoothly. Even though Jack can endure his huge misfortune, his loss of career status and all the punishment, small things irritate him more than ever. And it's not even a small thing, I don't think. Stephen is late, of course, and Jack gets really properly wound up by the lateness. Jack had left a note on shore with a suggestion for another rendezvous in a fortnight. He tells... Mr. Davidge, the third mate, to let Jack know if Admiral Russell comes around the headland and tells him to receive the Admiral aboard like any other private ship. Jack doesn't want to be in quote coming at the Royal Navy. He's very aware that the East India Company and some of the bigger ambitious privateers kind of gloss themselves up a little bit and try to look and sound exactly like the Navy. But Jack wants to run his ship man of war fashion. Mike, it's a really fascinating contradiction, an almost impossible contradiction for Jack. Because on the one hand, he doesn't want to be all showy and dressed like the Royal Navy. He's got a big aversion to sort of showing away and vanity. But on the other hand, he knows that the Royal Navy way of doing things is his idea of what honor and seamanship and good order is all about. So poor old Jack, he, he, he's setting himself an almost impossibly thin line to tread here between being just enough like the Navy that it's okay, but not so much like the Navy that he can be called out for being a, a, a fake or a, an Arabist. And I wondered if this had a little bit of echo in everybody's minds. For, for First of all, it reminded me a little bit of the challenge of doing fan fiction. Fan fiction is something that lots of O'Brien fans got into. And that's a, it's a really narrow line to tread between writing something that's a, a tribute to an author like O'Brien versus writing something that's a bit of a thin pastiche and for a young person a teenager even i think it's a quite common dilemma you know how do i be like the people that i want to emulate but not be so much like them that i look like i'm just kind of parroting their their thoughts and this occurred to me in connection with Patrick O'Brien and Jane Austen how did Patrick O'Brien write enough like the authentic 18th century voices like Jane Austen but how does he do it just shy of that so that it doesn't look like parody and pastiche? And maybe this is a representation of just how tricky it is for Jack. Um, Jack, by the way, it hasn't had to have this problem for a long time. He's a mature, grown professional seaman. He's been up till now really secure in his identity. He, can, identity. he can be sincere and authentic about who he is and how he behaves, but now he's got to worry about his identity and no wonder maybe he's behaving a bit like a grumpy teenager at the moment. That's
0: great insight, and great insight. Well, you know, Jack's got this meeting coming up with Admiral Russell, and, and he really doesn't want to go, but he knows Russell lives nearby, Russell's the guy who had used his influence to help Jack become a lieutenant, and Russell had sent an absolutely authentic, kind invitation, which really could not be refused. Now, despite his indignation about Stephen, Jack is wishing Stephen was there. Maybe this is part why he's mad, to kind of help him through the evening. And Jack really dreads other guests, especially naval ones. He does not want the sympathy of anyone except his most intimate friends or the supercilious distant civility of those who did not like him so yeah we can we can see this in jack we've seen it in stephen before yeah i do not want to be around these and we saw that in jack you know a number of times before but i think now really magnified
1: yeah he doesn't want to what was the phrase in um uh, in post captain they talked about not wanting to expose themselves to an affront and that same sensitivity is here isn't it
0: absolutely well put jack calls for killick to have his clothes ready and and, you know as we've seen a hundred times before killick you know which i'm already on it right he's got it he's working and and interestingly o'brien tells us that killick and bonded kind of knowing jack as well as they do act exactly as jack would want the lower deck to act no overt sympathy in in fact killick was o'brien writes even more cross grained than he'd been all these years by way of showing that there was no difference and Killick continues to grumble as he's kind of resewing, tightening the buttons, which Jack so often loses. And he's, you know, he's cussing and complaining that this maid at Ashgrove had no notion of seating a shank, man of war fashion. Now, I will tell you, and you listeners know, that adds absolutely nothing to the story, but it has my last name, Shank, in it. So I just wanted to read it and and enjoy hearing (laughs) it, right? So this, this idea of Killick here seating this shank, what do you think?
1: Well, maybe this little sign that there are some things about the way that things are done in the navy that we can hang on to. We, Killick can keep sewing on buttons, navy fashion, and that doesn't count as vanity or pretense. That can be authentic, and it's it's nice to see Killick able to do that on behalf of Jack.
0: Yeah, and ah. it's it's fascinating that even down to that level, there's this man of war fashion. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. yeah, that's right.
1: Um, they used to say that, didn't they? That there are three ways of doing anything. There's the right way, there's the wrong way, and then there's the Navy way.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyhow, earlier in the day, we kind of rewind the clock a little bit. We we spent some time with Stephen Matrin. Earlier in the day, he had decided, first risky move by Stephen, he decided that he wasn't going to take fast transportation. He wasn't going to travel in a post-chase. He was going to take the slow coach to go pick up Nathaniel Martin and then go ahead To meet jack on the surprise so we've already got stephen in kind of meandering mode here um this is partly driven by him wanting to kind of linger on the journey partly because he wanted to save a few pence and stephen's new perspective on money we heard about in the previous book and it's coming back to us here um since he became rich it says his concern with pence and shillings came over him he's walking to save money he's calculated the saving quite incorrectly because he can't multiply the error however was of no real importance since this was not a matter of true grasping avarice but rather of conscience as he saw it there was an indecency in wealth an indecency that could be slightly diminished by gestures of this kind and by an outwardly unaltered modest train of life and he's not the first catholic in the world to feel guilty about outward displays of guilt outward displays of wealth but <laughs> there you go um He's bless him, he's inconsistent about it, though. These fits don't happen regularly. He's not consistent. He had indulged himself, we learn, in a wonderfully supple pair of half boots made in St. James's Street and in the sinful luxury of cashmere stockings. So, Mike, uh, Stephen isn't quite straight in his head. What does looking after his money look like? And what does caring about the idea of money and how it looks, what does that look like?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. You just you made that mention about Catholics and, you know, this this kind of guilt. You know, same thing. You know, I'd grown up really poor. I mean, we had, my dad worked, had three jobs, one of them at a, a manufacturing facility. Our furniture was the cardboard demos that they had for these slipcovers they made. But I didn't know that. It was just furniture to me. You know, so I didn't realize that, but but later in life, I kind of got bumped up the corporate ladder pretty quickly and relative to where I had come from, and relative to seeing where so many other people, I was thinking, you know, I love this, and I hate this. I'm a little guilty yeah. about and that thing guilty as well. I mean so much so that you know after nine eleven when I decided to head off to seminary, it was kind of like. Very good. You know, I can go back to poverty and chastity. Well, <laughs> maybe poverty. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I definitely relate to Stephen's mixed feelings here.
1: And uh, lots of us, well, maybe a few of us just are not able to en- enjoy splashing the cash and feel good about it. I'm still, I think, slightly, slightly proud of the fact that I think I can you know, take take my worldly stuff with a pinch of salt. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe others can be a better judge of that. Ah. <sighs> Anyhow, as Stephen is mulling on this, we encounter somebody else who's mulling. And Mike, we're about to meet one of those really wonderful secondary characters that O'Brien just drops in out of the sky, so evocatively characterized that we can't imagine we'll never see them again. But Blue Breeches, this guy that Stephen meets wandering along the countryside here, gives me a big smile on my face when I get to this part of the book. Stephen's walking along a field. He's enjoying his new footwear. Stephen sees a man walking in the distance, Leaping around, talking out loud, sometimes in a man's voice, sometimes in a woman's voice. Clearly educated because in Greek, this person cries out, oh, that the false dogs might be choked with their own dung. Stephen can see that this person's in a little private world of their own, doesn't want to embarrass him by catching up. But on the other hand, Stephen needs to make progress and step out a little bit. So Stephen does catch up with the guy. Unexpectedly, the man turns around and says, what, have you got a message for me? And... We learn that Blue is this guy, is a writer who composes books by speaking them out loud as he walks in his
0: Dow. You know, Stephen sees that this guy looks a little embarrassed and, and he says, oh, you know, there's pl- I know plenty of people. And he's, he, he points out lawyers and politicians, especially, who harangue the empty air and think nothing of it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that's going on today. Yeah. But, you know, this this Blue breeches is expecting a message from his publisher who's mad because the presses are at a standstill waiting for his next pages to be penned. And and he explains to Stephen that oh, even though he conceives his books in the Dell by speaking them out loud, he has to be careful not to completely finish them. Or when he gets home, his imagination really gives him nothing to write down. And he, he says, O'Brien writes, the only way for me to succeed is by attaining a near success, a coitus interruptus with my muse, if you will (laughs) forgive me the expression, and then running home to my pen for the full consummation. (laughs) I'm just thinking about O'Brien going through his creative process here, (laughs) wondering, is he having fun with us? Is he having fun with uh, his publisher? and, and, And maybe this is a clue. You know, Blueberry just says his publisher just doesn't understand that the work of the mind differs from manual labor. With manual labor, it's, as he says, mere industry and application, which can hew a forest and carry an ocean of water. But this creative process, quite different.
1: Well, that's not the last time in this chapter we're going to come back to O'Brien's perspective on what other people think of his work as a writer. I, I can't imagine that O'Brien isn't thinking of his own situation here regarding his He's thinking aloud about Cortus Interruptus and then thinking about his work with a pen as full consummation. Hmm. Hmm. Freudian me think. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, Blue Britches, we're never going to find out his name. Blue Britches, like, like red shirts in Star Trek. Red shirts in Star Trek are just there to be shot by the aliens on the first landing on the planet. They're they're inconsequential. Blue Britches isn't going to be shot by aliens but you, I can tell you right now, we're never going to hear from this guy again. He invites Steven to view his Dell and contemplate his bustards. So, by the way, Mike, Bustards, large, long-necked, omnivorous land birds, for a while hunted to extinction in the UK, but never mind the ornithology, I'm pretty sure that this is a a fun play on words. Um, British schoolboys of a certain age will be giggling over the fact that reading this book aloud, you can say the word Bustard, which sounds like another word, um, over and over again without getting told off. I'm sure there's a bit of uh, scatological wordplay going on here. So, Stephen... Knows that Nathaniel Martin, the bird lover, would forgive him for the two hours of noodling with bustards that might be involved here. But he worries about Jack, who he says has naval regard for time. So Stephen thinks, it's okay. I will pick up a post chase. He drops his earlier abstemious thoughts. I'll get the expensive rapid transportation. I'll use this as my salve to my conscience for spending some time in the Dell with Blue Britches. So he gets to spend some time with bustards. And fast forward to the moment when he does finally catch up with Nathaniel Martin. Nathaniel Martin is asleep in front of an inn. By the way this is this sounds a lot like the very bucolic description of walking around the countryside that we got from Stephen's perspective at the beginning of the previous book. There are in this case there are swallows building a nest in the eaves above Martin as he's asleep in front of the inn. The swallows are dropping mud balls on his left shoulder, giving him what O'Brien describes as a liberal coating as he sleeps. And Mike, it, it can't be a coincidence that we get told that this is the left shoulder of Nathaniel Martin, right?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm listening to this thinking, wait a minute, that's where Jack got his epaulette when he became you know, when he was promoted to commander. So he's yeah. got this liberal coating on his left shoulder, exactly where Jack wore his epaulette when he was promoted to commander. So I'm, I'm wondering if O'Brien now has Reverend Martin given this liberal epaulette from nature, promoting him to commander for what Stephen will soon call this courageous pamphlet he wrote. And like Jack, Martin's effectively been dismissed for the service, but not for any bad deed. And And the birds are kind of pointing out the injustice here. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's a really nice moment a really nice image isn't it anyhow Stephen shouts shipmate ahoy martin wakes up and they get into conversation about the bustards Stephen is to his credit he's kind of on it with the timing he thinks okay i've got to go find a post chaise," <sighs> but he's gonna get undercut here he learns there are no post chases there are none in the town there's no other transportation the cart is away to the to market in another town, somebody's horse is lame. I can't remember. There's all these other reasons why he can't get transportation. And Stephen and Martin, I, I have no idea how they thought that it was going to be okay, but they set off towards Shelmiston. Stephen says they're only a few hours late. Only a few hours late. And Martin reminds him about the tide and Stephen says, Lord, I was forgetting the tide. And sailors do make such a point of it. <laughs> and as they're hustling through the undergrowth here, they get they get into Stephen pointing back out to Nathaniel Martin the courageous position that he'd taken with his pamphlet about corporal punishment and impressment and stuff. And he says, perhaps, Martin, this means you'll never get another chaplaincy position. And this, it turns out, is something that Nathaniel Martin hadn't clearly thought through. Um, Martin's wife, meanwhile, had heard exactly the same thing from an admiral, that this was a career-limiting move, uh, chaplaincy-wise, from Nathaniel Martin. And they, as they talked about Jack and the trial, Martin mentions that he's written two letters to Jack and that he hadn't got round to sending them. He destroyed them. He says, fearing to intrude and hurt with untimely sympathy, which Mike is dead on the button for how Jack would have perceived them. Hmm. Um, Martin goes on to talk about what a gross um, injustice it was and says, I would know very little of the world of commerce, let alone finance, but he's he is shocked to learn that Jack Aubrey has been dismissed from the service. The service meant everything to Mr. Aubrey, says Martin. So brave and honourable and to be turned away. And Stephen agrees that this has killed, at least temporarily killed Jack's joy in living. And Martin steps his foot in it a little bit here. And uh, Martin says he's glad that Jack still has Sophie, his wife. What a present comfort a wife is to a man, exclaimed Martin a smile breaking through the unaffected gravity of his expression. And there's a little pause here. Stephen's wife, Diana, was not a present comfort to him, but a pain at his heart, sometimes dull, sometimes almost insupportably acute, but never wholly absent. Ah, oh, And for a moment there, Mike, it seemed like Stephen was going to be getting all the joy and Jack was going to be in all the darkness, but we get a little bit of darkness for Stephen
0: here yeah and 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 i think we're going to hear this coming up over and over just a little bit you know kind of a little click 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 yeah with Stephen and diana in addition to as you say jack's darkness
1: so mike maybe some of our listeners need to sweep the mud balls off their shoulder uh maybe some of them need to go and consult with their significant other maybe they would like to rest in the inn themselves let's take a break and we'll be right back in just a few minutes If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash blubbershole.
0: Welcome back. Hope you had a good break there. We're still with Stephen and Reverend Martin as they're walking towards the surprise here. And Stephen's telling... Martin, that that Jack's friends have bought the surprise and fitted her out for Jack to command. And and Martin can't believe that surprise is a privateer because he thinks of most privateers as these little, you know, half disreputable, half piratical, uh, you know, 10 or 12 gun ships. But that's not the surprise at all. But then Martin remembers the Spartan, the 32 gun ship that the surprise had chased. But as Martin says, she was from America, was she not? And the country is so vast that one has an indistinct notion of everything being on a larger scale, even the privateers. And, and poor Martin, obviously, has been talking to somebody from Texas here, because you know all the Texans <laughs> will tell you everything's bigger in Texas. I mean, I even heard about this woman who's visiting Dallas, takes a wrong turn in the hotel, thinking she's entered the restroom, falls into the pool and hollers, don't flush it. Don't flush. <laughs> okay. So, not nearly as good as O'Brien's joke, but in the same vein of potty humor here. I think so. Ah, oh, well, and greetings
1: to all you Texans and your big hats out there. Oh. So, Stephen, by the way, this is a really nice bit of exposition for us just in case we need catching up on where we are with this whole thing with privateers and what's going to happen here. Stephen gets to explain. To Nathaniel Martin, that Surprise is no ordinary privateer. That usually hands are only paid from prize money. No, no prey, no pay is the rule in a privateer. But Stephen thinks that this makes them a little unruly and insolent, and that they plunder without mercy and they throw prisoners over the side. And Stephen's pleased that, and he's pleased to report to Nathaniel that Jack is running the Surprise along naval lines paying people a salary, accepting able seamen of good character, accepting only those that will submit to naval discipline. And let's not forget that they can afford the salary, they can afford their stability and the good order, because Stephen's inheritance is backrolling this whole thing. And they're planning to go on short cruises, one to the Baltics, and to test and form the crew, and then on their main cruise, once they've chosen only the best men. Stephen suggests that Martin, if he's in conversation, should call the surprise a private man of war, or a letter of Mark, not a private ear. And Mike, we heard many times over in the closing chapters of the previous book, just how sensitive naval types are, and just how sensitive Jack is about the idea of privateering versus being a letter of Mark.
0: Absolutely. Well, Martin then, you know who I love, has been thinking about Jack and and how this must have killed Jack, now kind of remembers his own situation a little bit here. And he says that even if surprise is far removed from the ordinary privateer or letter of Mark, there'll be no call for a chaplain unless he's mistaken. And O'Brien writes, <laughs> the urgency of his desire to be told that he did mistake was so evident in his lean, unbeneficed, anxious face that it grieves Stephen to have to say, at last, there is, as you know, a very absurd, superstitious prejudice among seamen they believe that carrying a parson brings you bad luck. And in an enterprise of this kind, luck is everything. That's why they seek to ship with lucky Jack Aubrey in such numbers.
1: Whoa, that, that's a bit of a setback there for Nathaniel Martin, who might have been hoping for some income for his fragile new household. Right, But fortunately, Stephen goes right on to say that the purpose for the meeting was to find out whether Martin was willing for Stephen to ask Jack to appoint Martin as surgeon's assistant, not as Parson, for this long journey to South America. And he talks about how Martin's knowledge of medicine already exceeds those of most surgeons' mates. And he, he, Stephen, would like a civilised companion and a naturalist into the bargain. He says, do pray turn it over in your mind. If you could let me have your answer in a fortnight's time at the end of the first cruise, you would oblige me. Does the nomination depend on Mr. Aubrey alone? asked Martin, his face fairly glowing and no longer unbeneficed. It does. Then, may we not perhaps run a little? As you see, the road is downhill as far as the eye can reach.
0: (laughs) Martin can't wait to get to Jack and find out if he still can make a living here. That's fabulous. I love that line. Oh, well, we're back now on the surprise and and the lookout points out five Sail of ships, men of war from the breast squadron, and the lookout is, is relieved that there's no sloops or brigs among them. That because they might run down and press the surprises. Men, there's two seventy fours, a three-decker, probably the Caledonia, flying the vice admiral of the red flag, and then two more seventy fours, the last the Pompeii. and they wore in succession. And O'Brien writes, making a line as exact as if it had been traced with a ruler, each ship two cables lengths from its leader. In their casual, thrown away beauty, they must have moved any seaman's heart, though most bitterly wounding one excluded from that world. Mm -hmm. Yet it had to happen sooner or later, and Jack was glad that the first shock had been no worse. This particular misery had many aspects, not the least being his sharp, immediate, practical realization that he was the potential prey of his own service. But, he was not much given to analyzing his feelings. And once the squadron had disappeared, he resumed his dogged walk fore and aft. Ouch. It's really painful.
1: O'Brien points out that they're sailing away to the horizon, this beautiful symmetrical line of warships sailing away from Jack. This is like, this is the reverse of the reverse of the medal, I think.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, oh. Yeah, this is this is the, the flip side of the adulation of the second last chapter in the pillory scene in the reverse of the medal. This is the other side of being outside of the Navy. Oh, painful, painful. So we've got two views of vessels here. We've got this the breast squadron heading offshore in beautiful symmetry. Turning our telescopes figuratively back inshore, we've got the sight of a small boat taking off from the harbour. Now, remember, this is as seen from the surprise who is outside the bar, so outside, outside the harbour. So this could be easily three-quarters of a mile, a mile away. The small boat takes off from the harbour with someone waving something white. I don't think there's any doubt in our minds who that is. In a telescope, Jack sees what we know, which is that it's Parson Martin and Stephen. (laughs) The two gentlemen, it says though long accustomed to the sea, both had some mental disability, some unhappy want of development that kept them from any knowledge of its ways. They were perpetual landlubbers, and Dr. Maturin in particular had, in his attempts coming up the side, fallen between more ships and the boat that was carrying him than could well be numbered. And Stevens had a real telling off from Jack in these situations before and i'm I'm reading this thinking jack is in this very cold detached mood Stephen could well be the victim of the sharp side of jack's tongue here but fortunately not the crew's ready for them they come aboard safely dry more or less dry foot jack's happy to see them both and good news for martin and his chattering teeth killick has been summoned to make some coffee
0: well, like you said, Ian, instead of telling him off, you know, and Stephen, thank goodness, thinks immediately to apologize for running late. Thanks, Jack, for waiting for them. And and Jack says, not to worry. He's eating with Admiral Russell this evening. And, you know, he asks Killy to let Captain Pullings know that he has some friends come aboard. So Stephen takes that moment then, as, as they're summoning Tom, to ask Jack if Martin can join the crew as assistant surgeon. And Jack says... Not as chaplain and, and he doesn't yeah, absolutely he's happy to have Martin in the physical line, since as Jack says, you know some of, of these other men are even more given to pagan superstition, yeah, as if Jack is never right, but you know he also says that he you know he kind of thinks those men will want to be buried in style if accidents happen, so in Jack's words, so is that as long as you're on the ship's book as assistant surgeon, they'll have the best of both worlds <laughs> It's not unlucky, and you do get to be buried by a parson. Yeah, two for right? Two for yeah, It's two for right? <laughs> Buy one, get one.
1: So this is all. This is all working out pretty nicely here. And the admiral comes aboard, and uh, again, we're a little bit in trepidation here. Is Jack going to be the subject of either an actual slight or the feeling of a slight about either over solicitous sympathy or being somehow um, cut dead? by the visits from this admiral. But of course, Admiral Russell is an old friend of Jack's and he comes aboard the larboard side, the the left-hand side of the boat, to avoid ceremony, to avoid needing to be piped aboard. And Stephen thanks the admiral for the invitation and apologizes that he hasn't had time to change his clothes. And it's great. Remember, Mike, it's quite rare, but enjoyable when we have an admiral who's positively inclined towards the world and positively inclined towards Jack and positively inclined towards the slightly peculiar habits of Jack's Associates like Steve. Right. Admiral Russell says, don't worry. It's only his niece, Polly, and Admiral Shank. So who knew there was an Admiral Shank? Represent, right, Mike?
0: Absolutely. Glad to hear it.
1: (laughs) Well, he had hoped that this other Admiral, Admiral Henry, who was very much in the medical way, he said, would have joined them. But he was already bespoke. And this Admiral Henry had left his best compliments and a copy of his latest book. And this Admiral Shank, we learn, Mike, this is this is not just a name check for you. This is a real Admiral um, known as Old Purchase in the Royal Navy, uh, Born 1740, died 1823, famous for skill in construction and mechanical design. So there you go. Admiral John Shank um, had been involved in the design of various innovative vessels, including one that had three sliding keels. I've got a feeling, Mike, that we mentioned the name of Shank back in... Post captain, when we had the Polycrest and the sliding keels, I wondered keels about and that a.
0: with the sliding keels. I thought I, I should go back and check that. It's a great point. Well, he you know he did so well with these things that they actually named parts of Australia after him when one of his ships sailed there, which is kind of right. nice. Now yeah. he he does spell his name slightly differently than mine, and more like my son-in-law Jordan Shank, who married my daughter Jordan Shank. Both Shanks spelled differently. <laughs>
1: I'm saying nothing about "Welcome to the South." I'm not, and that's, that 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 phrase is not going to pass my lips. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right. Not good enough for our own family. Wait, yeah. <laughs> So Admiral Henry, I couldn't find Admiral Henry. I, you know, I thought surely, you know, we're going to get into all this medical stuff, but couldn't find him. But was glad to see Admiral Shank was in fact a real person. So
1: Stephen looks through Admiral Henry's medical book. An account of the means by which Admiral Henry has cured the rheumatism, a tendency to gout, the tic douloureux, the cramp and other disorders by which a cataract in the eye was removed. Right, that's that's not only a panacea, that's a heck of a book title. (laughs) Yeah, next time I need everything, I'll pick up that book. (laughs) Meanwhile, the niece Polly, whose black hair and blue eyes brought Diana even more strongly to mind. That little painful jangle for Stephen again. Played some variations on a theme by Pergolesi, and we're we're back into a nice musical reference here, Mike Giovanni Pergolesi, a Baroque late Baroque Italian composer, dead in the wheelhouse, I think, for Jack and Stephen, and their their slight liking for the what you might call the old Rococo galant style. This is old era music, even by the time we're already in the early 19th century, quite a long way away from the the Mozarts and the Haydns of the world that were more contemporary. So, nice reference. A little bit of a painful moment there, thinking about Diana.
0: They're all sitting there together, and and Admiral Shank has dozed off, and and he wakes and apologizes and and asks Stephen what they're discussing. And Stephen says they're talking about the Admiral's device for doing away with the inconvenience, the mortal inconvenience of rising too high in a balloon. Uh So, you know, Shank is talking about people who died going up in balloons. They're never seen again or they're frozen. And, and he did have a device, a block system to kind of push some of the air out of the balloon. But now is working on something to kind of let out some of the gas. But he points out that if it's a hot air balloon, if the day cools and they have let out some of this gas, you know, they could crash. And Stephen tells him that he really he had gone up in a balloon once, but it was too cold and wet. They couldn't go up. Uh, With both men, Stephen had to get out. And now that ballooning is fashionable again, he'd like to try it so he can watch vultures flying in the sky, you know, properly here. But Admiral Shanks says, they're nasty, dangerous things, Matron. And and although I do not deny that a properly anchored gas balloon led up to, say, three or 4,000 feet might make a useful observation post for a general... I do believe that only condemned criminals should be sent up in them. (laughs) And then Shank looks around and says, you know, where's Aubrey gone? Where's Admiral Russell? He says, it's past time to eat. If I'm not fed what I'm used to being fed, your vultures ain't in it. I tear my companions apart like the lions in the tower. Wow, I'm I'm entirely
1: to Admiral Shank's way of thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So, by the way, we should stick a pin in the idea of Stephen and balloon travel because i think there's something coming for us later in the arc um i don't know if that counts as chekhov's balloon or not we'll see there is though a nice little easter egg an o'brien personal specific easter egg underneath this reference to the balloon one of the balloonists that was referred to as having perished in a ballooning accident was somebody called senhouse and senhouse was the name of an editor. Roger Senhouse, in fact, was an editor at the publisher Seker and Warburg, who were at, a, at one time considering being the publisher for Patrick O'Brien's um, novel set in Wales called Testimonies, a, a separate publisher from the one for the Aubrey Matrim series. And Roger Senhouse and Patrick O'Brien had famously failed to get along. O'Brien was a bit of a prickly character anyway and took slights quite deeply. Senhouse was not shy in saying that he didn't think O'Brien in some aspects of his writing wasn't up to much. He said at one point that O'Brien should fish for a living. <laughs> so Senhouse's name appears in the character of somebody who flew too high and was dashed to smithereens in uh, in, a, in a poetically described fall. So, yeah, O'Brien's getting his own back on people who had
0: held him back in some way in the editorial side of things. Well done, O'Brien. <laughs> so, in the library, you know, in the other room here, Admiral Russell's talking with Jack and he says, everyone I've spoken to agrees that the ministry's action against you or rather against your father and associates was the ugliest thing the service has seen since poor Bing was judicially murdered. You may be sure that my friends and I shall do everything we can to have you reinstated. And Jack bowed and in spite of his certain knowledge that this was the worst thing they could possibly done, far worse than useless since the Admiral and his friends belong to the opposition. But he would have made a proper acknowledgement if the admiral had not held up his hand saying, not a word. What I really wanted to say to you is this. Do not mope. Do not keep away from your friends, Aubrey. By people who do not know you well, it might be interpreted as a sense of guilt. And in any case, it makes for brooding and melancholy and the blue devils. Don't keep away from your friends. know several that have been hurt, heard of more And Jack says, you know, it's very handsome of them to invite me, but my going must have compromised them. And there's so much competition for ships and promotion nowadays that I would not have my friends in any way handicapped at the Admiralty. It's different with you, sir, he says to Russell. I know you do not want a command and an Admiral of the White who has already refused a title has nothing to fear from anyone, Admiralty or not.
1: Wow. So we've got this tension still there. I, I was reading the first part of this thinking, yay for the Admiral. That's really great advice. Don't mope. Don't be a stranger to your friends. But Jack's got a point that it's all very well for a politically um, untouchable Admiral to say this, but some of his friends are more at risk. And we're left wondering which of these two perspectives is going to win. Is Jack going to say, okay, I'll I'll stay back and get the 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 fellowship of my friends and stay back in society? Or is the part of Jack that wants to withdraw going to win and this novel is going to be all about finding out which it is i think can i go back and talk about admiral bing for a second i wish you would well it's one of those references that is is talked about a lot outside of the canon lots of people are aware that the french philosopher voltaire had written this kind of throwaway line that the english are much given to shooting an admiral from time to time pour encourager les autres to encourage the others which is a sarcastic joke about the encouraging effect of seeing one of your colleagues being shot as an example and actually admiral bing and his shooting his his execution by the british authorities was exactly the situation that voltaire was talking about uh bing had been to sea from the age 13 he'd been a captain from age 23 a real admiral age 40 and when the seven years war broke out in 1756 as a full admiral off he went to gibraltar He was there to prevent the French breaking out of Toulon, prevent them from capturing the British garrison of Fort St. Philip on the island of Menorca. Bing had got to Gibraltar, discovered that the French were already on Menorca in a sizable force and that they were besieging a fort, and he hesitated. And the king of the time, George II, was very, very angry at this. This man will not fight. And in the end, Fort St. Philip surrendered only after the French had sailed away and Bing had held off from this action. So mobs had gone around calling for Bing and Bing to swing, apparently, and he was court-martialed. He defended himself, but the court eventually found that he was guilty and reluctantly sentenced him to death. He was shot by a firing squad. Hence Voltaire's comment in the novel Candide, in this country, it's good to kill an admiral from time to time in order to encourage the others. So poor old
0: Bing. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they all come together. They're eating together. And Russell gives a letter to Jack, a letter he had received from Lord Nelson, which includes the line, I have no doubt that your company would be delightful on the day of battle to your friends, but damn bad for your enemies. And Jack thinks it's the best letter ever written. And he's so grateful for the gift. And then, Admiral Shank recounts you know, some words that Nelson had spoken to his nephew and the other midshipmen that served under Nelson at the time. He said, first, you must always implicitly obey orders without attempting to form any opinions of your own respecting their propriety. Secondly, you must consider every man your enemy who speaks ill of your king. And thirdly, you must hate a Frenchman as you do the devil. Well, you know, Stephen is is shocked. You know, Stephen loves un-Napoleonic France. And he says he cannot have meant all Frenchmen, but Shank says he does. And Russell says, you know, it was perhaps a little sweeping, but then so were his victories. And really, upon the whole, you know, there's very little good in the French. Stephen's a bit shocked
1: by this rather illiberal remark from the admiral who goes on a little bit. You can learn a great deal, he says, about a nation from its proverbial expressions. And when the French wish to describe anything mighty foul, they say, sale comme peigne, dirty as a comb. And the Admiral says, this gives you a pretty idea of their personal cleanliness. When they have other things to occupy their mind, they say they have other cats to whip, most inhuman thing to do. And when they are to put a ship about, the order that they give is adieu which means we trust it to God, which gives you some notion of their seamanship. The admiral says, "I cannot conceive of anything more criminal." <laughs> so, if he doesn't like slightly unhygienic-sounding or distasteful-sounding metaphors, he's going to have a hard time
0: with uh, flogging a dead horse, for example. Right, right, that's right. Wouldn't pass the Russell's test. Certainly wouldn't pass my bride's test. <laughs> ah, well, there
1: you go. And this is these is kind of amiable conversations that it turns out is just just dinner party talk. Um, Jack and Russell return to talking about Nelson and Stephen is about to point out that there are indeed actually some good Frenchmen like the ones who made the sublime claret that they're busy drinking. Uh, Stephen would have voted remain I'm pretty sure by the way. Um, when, When Russell says that there may be some exceptions but he still has no use for the French. One of them had played a trick which he said was as loathsome as a French comb and he goes on to describe this deceptive ruse that he'd encountered. He was commanding a boat called the Hussar. Uh, they had chased a sail which had jury masts and had battle damage, had English colours over French at the ensign staff and an English ensign reversed. And this was this must surely have been a sign that they were a retaken prize and they were in distress. Um, but as he approached what he thought would be a prize crew, he saw two to 300 men commanded, in his words, by a dishonourable scrub. She'd run out her guns. She'd fired at the Hussar, Wounded his foremast, and Russell had had to call borders away only for the French ship to turn and run. And they'd fired at each other, they'd changed course along the way until the Hussar had finally had to secure its foremast and bowsprit. They chased her, they saw the Centurion interior close by, and in a few hours they finally caught this French ship, La Sibylle. After a broadside, this unscrupulous wicked dog the commander the comte de cargario cargario de soc maria had struck his colors and general outrage all round the table i think from the right thinking british admirals here And jack leans he says what did you do to him sir hush said the admiral cocking an eye at shank old purchase is fast asleep let us creep away and i will run you back to your ship the breeze serves, and you will lose not a minute of your tide. Nice. <laughs> end of chapter one with a great little bit of a an O'Brien trope there right at the end. Lose not a minute. Right.
0: Right. And by the way, the the Admiral Russell story and you know, the French ship and its commander, all taken from real life, slightly yep. embellished in the way it's told, but uh, you know, true story. But it's yeah. it's kind of it's it's hard to kind of figure out for me a little bit what to make of this chapter here.
1: Yeah, there's there's a few things that might be planted in there for us to come back to. Um, the Stephen and Diana and the Blue Peter, what's going on there? Right. This why did we get introduced to this strange character of Blue Breeches talking about his outdoor copulatory mode of writing? Um, what about all this reference to ballooning? And what's going on with Stephen and Diana? Right.
0: Right ray and ledward i mean my gosh ray and ledward okay i I was glad of all this i'm glad to see jack what's happening yeah
1: and which version of jack is gonna carry the day through this novel is it gonna be happy jack learning to be at ease in the company of his crew members aboard the letter of mark is it gonna be gloomy jack unsure about his identity unsure about his way in the world boy mike I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say next week to just a little more Patrick O'Brien?
0: I would like that of all things.
1: about welcome to the south. I'm not and that's that that phrase is not gonna pass my lips. <laughs> <laughs> that's right.